Amen. It is a blessing to know that his grace is still amazing to us. And uh, at this time, uh, actually, I'm not dismissing the children to Children's Church because it's the fifth Sunday of a month. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, about once every four months. So this week, the kids get to be in here with us. It's great to have everybody. First, let me say this morning, thank you for being with us this Memorial Day weekend. It is admittedly what I would call a mixed bag Sunday in the life of the church. On the one hand, we certainly want to honor those who have sacrificed their lives for the freedoms that we participate in every Sunday. And no doubt there are many who are with us today who have lost loved ones, either to protect and defend our land or to protect freedom in other places around the world. So I simply say thank you to those of you who have sent loved ones off to fight, unable to see them return. And of course, while we, actually I referenced it earlier, there's a verse that stands out to me, greater love hath no man than this, that he should lay down his life for one's friends. And as we consider that verse, I challenge you to recognize that while we do celebrate those who have given their lives in military battles, that there is one who gave his life for all of us. And that's really what today is about. It's not about our veterans. It's not about those who have died on the military battlefield. We do celebrate them. We say thank you. But today is about Jesus Christ and what he has done. The other side of Memorial Day Sunday is a little bit less attractive. It tends to be the Sunday that everybody wants to go out of town. Traditionally, it is one of the lowest attended Sundays in almost every church, although you wouldn't know it as I look around here today. In fact, in my first pastoral position, I was a youth pastor who rarely had the opportunity to preach, but I could always count on being able to preach on Memorial Day weekend. Well, for multiple reasons, I did not want to get someone else to preach for me today. In fact, I have far too much to share, and I'm not even sure if I'm going to get it all in within the allotted time today. I do thank you all for allowing the staff and I to go this past week as we attended our 14th General Conference of the Wesleyan Church in St. Louis, Missouri. I had a fellow pastor from our district who stopped me uh, one night while we were there to tell me how much he wished that other churches were sending their entire staff to be a part of the event as well. It was not only a great time for us to bond together, but it was also a chance for us to see how some of the decisions are made regarding church practices. And while I don't want to get into too much about the decisions that were made at General Conference, I do want to take a moment and share some takeaways that I got while we were there. First, there were some governmental changes that were approved that we will try to better understand before implementing. I'm not sure that many of these changes will affect us that much because actually they changed to a model that actually fits a little more what we were already doing. So we'll need to examine some of those before we make some of those changes. In regard to beliefs and practices, there were not significant changes. However, there were some things worthy of note. First, I want to share with you a current statement of belief from the Wesleyan Church that was shared at our conference. This is relatively long, but I am going to read it to you because I want to make sure that I word it correctly. 
We affirm our deep commitment to our mission of evangelizing the lost, discipling believers, equipping the church, and ministering to society. This mission is foundational as we seek to be agents of the hope and holiness of Jesus Christ. Unprecedented times is a term often used to accurately describe our current reality. The COVID-19 pandemic has upended many things we have taken for granted for decades. Coupled with the ever-shifting sands of our culture on the social and political issues of our time, uneasiness and a sense of angst hover in the air. Changes thrust on us have raised questions and perhaps even fears and apprehension as we attempt to navigate the shifting landscape. More than once we have asked, what is next? Our general superintendent, general board, district superintendents, and the presidents and board chairs of our colleges and universities have prayed, discussed, and reasoned together on these matters and unanimously approved the following statement of affirmation. We hereby declare that we remain deeply committed to proclaim, defend, and hold each other accountable for the historic and orthodox doctrinal positions of the Wesleyan Church as presented in our Articles of Religion. And we hereby affirm our full and ongoing support for the official position papers on the social issues of our time, including our commitments to affirm that persons of all races are created equal in the image of God and are entitled to equal justice under the law. To affirm that persons of all races, how did I get that? I, somehow I typed it in and one and two are the same. So we're gonna skip the second one. The third one, to affirm the sanctity of life and that all life is sacred from conception to death. To affirm that religious freedom is a liberty essential for our pluralistic democracy. Loyalty has not changed. Love still thrives. Commitment remains strong. The core is solid. While commitment to our understanding of biblical truth is unwavering, we do understand that there are other points of view on a range of social issues. There is room for courteous dialogue on these issues within the boundaries of biblical truth. As our leaders, we commit ourselves to pray earnestly for the power of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to rest on the ministry of the Wesleyan Church. Our deep passion is to be agents of both grace and truth in this time and place in history. That is a firm statement that declares that we are a holiness church and we ought to continue to be a holiness church. Specific to action that was taken at the conference, there was a memorial that was voted on which addressed the use of alcohol even among our pastors. And I will suggest to you today that while we declare that we are a holiness church, not everybody in the church is wanting to stay in that capacity. My hope was that the denomination would maintain a position which requires ministers to abstain from alcohol. I see this as an expression of love toward others, not wanting to become a stumbling block to anybody else. I will gladly address more with that idea in another sermon, but I don't have time to do so today. Anyways, I got what I wanted. The denomination did not change our current position, but I will say that the vote was much closer than I had hoped it would be. My takeaway from this is first, that this issue will be brought up again in a future general conference, likely four years from now.
The issue isn't just going to go away. And it is likely as our world naturally trends away from holiness that the day will come when this prohibition will be removed. But I very much want to do something about it. This church is uniquely positioned to potentially influence our denomination. We are perhaps the most conservative growing church in our denomination. Percentage-wise, among churches over 200 in weekly attendance, we are likely the fastest growing church in our denomination, showing just under a 50% increase in our weekly attendance over the past year. And we could sit and just revel in the great things that are happening here, or we can press on to accomplish much greater things. I cannot be content with where we are today, and I pray that you will not be either. My prayer is that when our next general conference comes around, the Trinity Wesleyan Church will be that loud, conservative, holiness voice to a denomination that desperately needs to get back to our foundation of scripture and truth. Well, as we continue to reach the lost, we position ourselves perfectly to do just that. And know that this is not just about our denomination. Yes, we will be able to better influence our denomination, but the bigger issue is that we have a truth that the rest of the world and this community needs to hear. Are we imperfect? Do we need to do certain things better? Yes, absolutely. But as we seek to honor the Lord in everything that we say and do, I believe that the best days of this church are in front of us, not behind us. Now, I have one more thing that I need to address before I get into today's message. Although what I'm about to share now will actually fit with today's message. It's something likely that all of you have already been processing this week. My guess is that all of you have been following the tragic shooting that occurred in Texas this week. And my heart breaks for those families who will never be able to tuck their children in bed again. You know, I have so many thoughts related to this incident. And I don't want to merely present my opinion on various issues, but I also don't want to be silent on something that is so real and present even within the church today. Before I get into this, let me say that what I'm about to share is not pro-gun or anti-gun. I don't want to cover this from a political standpoint. There are enough other people who are more intelligent than I who can debate gun ownership. And the odds are that if you put three of us into a room to talk about what gun laws need to change, you'd probably hear three different opinions. There are clearly many different thoughts on this, but what I will share, I know to be absolutely correct, and it is 100% in line with biblical truth. First, in the midst of such sorrow, the church must be faithful to pray for God's comfort and grace to be extended during times of sorrow. And whatever we can do to come alongside those families, we ought to do. I have a pastoral friend 
whom I saw this past week, and he lives and serves just a few miles from where this tragic event took place. In fact, his son's baseball coach shared that his daughter attends that school. I've already reached out to him to find out what we can do as a local church to help minister to those families as they will be providing for needs in the local community. His response is, I will let you know as soon as I can. He's actually supposed to meet with individuals this week. But the greatest need is not merely a prayer of comfort or even our support after tragedy strikes. The greatest need is revival. I've seen on many, so many people this week on social media who have posted for a call to action as a result of this event. They want you to call your senators and to elect individuals who will support legislation banning or limiting weapons. But again, I told you this is not anti-gun or pro-gun. I actually agree that it is time for action. I agree that faith without works is dead. But I suggest that the action that is needed is not more legislation. What is needed is revival. And while I think that we all would agree that we need revival, I think that what we mean by the word revival may vary. So let me explain what the scripture means when we talk about revival. A verse that is echoed in, my, in this pulpit many times before declares God's word to God's people. And it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. That is repentance. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. For those who are utterly lost, those who do not know Jesus Christ, those who are anti-God or those who are apathetic toward God, the time has come for the lost to be found. I was talking earlier about the need for this church to continue to grow. Well, one of the greatest ways for us to do that is to reach those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. We are surrounded by people who desperately need to be transformed by God's grace, and many of them don't even realize it. They need revival. But it's not just the lost who need to experience revival. In fact, I would suggest that the greatest need for revival lies within those who would call themselves Christians, yet they act like everybody else. And I hate to say this, but maybe we're talking about an awful lot of people who are in church this morning. Christianity for them is something that you've included in your life. It's something that you do as long as it doesn't impose too much upon you. Christianity is especially relevant on Sunday morning, but not especially relevant at other points in the week. This version of Christianity doesn't call you to anything unique. You can socially drink, you can watch whatever you want on television, you can play whatever games you want. This version of Christianity doesn't require that you put the needs of others before your own. It doesn't require purity within the marriage. It doesn't require integrity in the workplace. It doesn't require love 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, or self-control. Now, maybe you would say the pastor must not be talking about me. I'm pretty good about my integrity at work. Or I don't even like alcohol. Great. Are you loving people as if they were made in the very image of God? Are you overwhelmed by the joy of Christ? Or are you so blinded by all the junk that you dislike? Or maybe you're doing pretty good at your church attendance, but you're still dabbling with specific sins that you know are unhealthy. Or maybe the question for you is, what is most influencing to you? You spend hours in front of the television watching all kinds of entertainment. Some of it may be good, some of it may be bad, but you're watching that as your source of influence. You're watching all kinds of news reports. You're reading up on every article possible. You're looking at all kinds of things on the internet. Again, some of it may be good, some of it may be bad, but you haven't opened up your Bible since last Sunday. I remember many years ago, I heard a board member who admitted that he didn't read the Bible too much, but he thought a lot about spiritual things. That's a problem. And revival is not merely something that people outside the church need. It is something that the church desperately needs now. In fact, I would take it a step further. And it says that, I would say that even the most devout follower of Jesus Christ is constantly in need of revival. In Luke 9, verse 23, Jesus declares that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. And often we stop at that point. But he says they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Many of us have made a decision somewhere along the way to follow Jesus. And if we were to tell the story of our faith, everything would be in the past. I remember when I knelt at an altar. I remember as a child when I prayed to follow Christ. Well, those are great statements. But how current is your walk with Jesus Christ? I share all of that to say that the real problem in our country is found in our need for revival and not some token name only revival. I mean a genuine returning to Christ. If what I have described so far resonates with you and who you are and the way you have lived your life, which by the way, it should for all of us. I've described three positions along the spectrum of faith. Those who do not know Jesus, those who have wandered from their faith, and those who need to reintroduce themselves to Jesus. If what I've described so far resonates with you, then I plead with you to seek revival today. You want this nation to be different? You want to know that our kids are safe? You want to know that all of the things that are taking place today aren't going to continue? Then revival needs to take place. It's not, this isn't a, isn't a problem that's going to fix itself. But if we will turn to the Lord, we will find the healing that this land desperately needs. Maybe you say, well, my heart is right with God. 
I'm exactly where I need to be. Go tell somebody else about Jesus. Because the need for revival is within the church. It is outside the church as well. Let me take a moment right now to lead us in prayer for our nation. Father, first of all, we are grateful for your grace and hardship. And we recognize that all of us carry burdens every day. But we also recognize that some are much more intimately familiar with grief this morning. We pray for comfort for those who have lost loved ones. May your spirit be present with them. And may you journey with them in the days ahead. But I also pray that you would allow this to serve as a turning point in our nation. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of how much we desperately need you. And I pray that you would begin to transform us into your likeness. Take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Cause us to hunger after you more than anything else and allow us to become your instruments of grace and peace in all things. We plead for our nation today. We plead for our children. We plead for revival to fall upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there was a time that my sermons, I would try to have about four pages of notes. I'm already on page four today, and I'm just now getting to the meat of what I want to talk with y'all about. It's not the way I normally would do this, but this is where we find ourselves today. I want to talk for a few moments about those who need revival. I told you that what I was sharing would very closely connect with today's scripture. Our primary passage today is found in John chapter 3, and if you want to turn in your Bibles there, we're going to specifically be looking at verses 1 through 15. But before I read that, do you remember the story of the prodigal son? It's recorded in Luke chapter 15. You had this young man who wanted to experience all that the world had to offer. He wanted the freedom to do whatever he wanted without boundaries. He wanted to enjoy the pleasures of sin. So he asked his father for his inheritance. He knows that according to their culture, his father would one day split all of his belongings between his two sons. Well, why wait until dad dies? Let's do it now. His father graciously agrees, and some would say even foolishly agrees, giving his son the desires of his heart. The son leaves, choosing a life of sin and selfishness over the love of his father. Can you imagine how heartbreaking this would have been for the father? Well, y'all know the story. Eventually, this young man realizes that he has squandered everything. He has spent all of his money on foolish living. In fact, he finds himself eventually living in the lowest of circumstances. He's gone from the wealth and prosperity of living in his father's household to having to eat slop intended for pigs. And suddenly he comes to his senses. He realizes that what he's done is probably too much for his father to accept him back as a son. But even if all he could ever do was to go back to his father's home and become a servant in the household of his father, that would be better than where he's at right now. This guy is starving. He is humbled. He has reached the point where 
man, things couldn't get any worse than what they are. So he chooses to go home. He works out in his mind some type of speech of how he'd like to be able to welcome, be welcomed back into the home, but not as a son. He recognizes that he has failed. Listen to what it said in Luke 15, verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I don't know if you noticed, but we're talking about lost and found. I told you earlier that the world around us is lost and is desperately in need of being found. The world around us is dead without Christ, and we are desperately in need of life that only comes through Christ. I don't know if you noticed here, but this is revival that is being described. It would accurately describe this man. The beautiful image for us is that just as this boy's father gladly welcomed him in, God is eager to welcome us in when we choose to return to him. But you probably know that that story is still incomplete. There is another son. He has remained faithful to his father. He's not gone away and wasted his father's money. And when he returns from work, only to find this feast taking place for his not-so-reputable brother, there's almost a sense of, but this isn't fair. There's this idea that I deserve something better than your other son, Dad. I don't want to talk too much about the brother's bitterness today. But rather, I want to point out something that I'm afraid will relate very well to many of us as a church. You have here two individuals who have chosen very different paths in life. One sang the song, I did it my way, while the other was good and would have likely been deserving of the Father's blessing. I want to contrast these two sons for a moment, but as I do, I want you to recognize that what we're really talking about is those who have chosen a life of sin versus those who have been good and deserving of God's blessing. You know, they both needed the grace of the Father. The fact is that neither of them deserved something from the Father in the first place, but he generously longs to bless both of them. The difference here is that one thinks he deserves it, while the other realizes that he deserves nothing. It's a common problem for those in the church. In fact, I would suggest that revival is most difficult for those who have been in the church all their lives. The one who is deep in his sin spends so much time close to destruction and defeat that in the midst of trial, he knows that he needs God's help. But for those who are spiritual 
and good. Those who have been in church every Sunday have tithed, have been involved with service to the church. There is this idea that somehow I am good enough and God's lucky to have me. But it's not true. We all need the Lord. And this brings us to our passage in John chapter 3. Jesus would constantly reach into the lives of sinners. He would eat with tax collectors. He would transform adulterous women. He would heal the unclean. He'd take dirty, stinky fishermen and turn them into vessels who would change the world. Basically, he would take these prodigal sons and he would welcome them home. But John 3, at least the first few verses, isn't about the wayward son. It's about the religious one. It's about, I'm going to call him Saint Nick, the original Saint Nick. His real name is Nicodemus. Listen to this story beginning in John 3, verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? I'm going to stop right there. The passage actually goes on. There's at least three more verses that I'd planned on reading. But I want to stop right there. Remember that we're talking about a contrast here. Those who have wandered so far away from God, and we're talking about the adulterers, the tax collectors, the sinners, and now we've got this guy who shows up to meet with Jesus. We've got individuals who have eagerly grabbed hold of the life that Jesus is making available to them. They're ungodly, often people who are often dwelling in the midst of brokenness and sin, and then you have this religious man who seems to think that what Jesus is saying is nothing more than gibberish. It doesn't make sense. But there's more to this than just what we see on the surface. Did you know that the idea of being born again was not actually new with Jesus? In fact, in the Jewish culture, there was always the opportunity for someone who was not born a Jew to be born again. They could choose Judaism. And in doing so, it was viewed as if they were infants in their faith. 
like one who is born again. In fact, a mass born again moment, according to the Jews, they viewed the Israelite escape from Egypt under the leadership of Moses as a moment when all of Israel was born again. They left the old behind and entered into a new freedom and life. Still, there was one other type of born again experience to the Jews. For those who would be called into Levitical work, those who would become religious leaders to the community, it was perceived that life did not truly begin for them until the moment they stepped into a ministry role. It would be similar to Samuel when the Lord spoke to him, calling his name repeatedly in the night and preparing him for his ministry that was about to begin. So in this manner, Nicodemus has likely already experienced what it means to be born again. Remember, he was a religious ruler. Now let's go back to the question from Nicodemus. How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their, their mother's womb to be born. Suddenly, Jesus' rebuke of him being Israel's teacher, yet not understanding these things makes a little more sense. You ought to know the answer. You ought to know this because this is a principle that the Jewish leaders would have been familiar with. But here's what's really in play for Nicodemus. He's been taught that he's good enough. He's jumping through all of the religious hoops and the rest of the world looks at him as the original Saint Nick. And the world says he's pretty good. He deserves God's blessing. But Nicodemus knows that there is still something missing. You know, sometimes I wonder if it isn't easier to grasp the truth of God's grace among those who are distant from God as opposed to those who have been in the church all their lives. It's not to say that God can't reach the religious one. It's not to say that our kids would be better off if we raised them without God in their lives. That is obviously not true. But the truth is we need more than just more biblical information. We need a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. We need to know where we stand and how little we deserve. Remember the son who comes back? The wayward son who has wandered from his father and has wasted all the blessing that his father had given him. He comes back with the attitude, I'm not even worthy to be his son. Maybe he'll at least accept me back as a servant. We need to appreciate the gift of salvation in a completely different way than what we have before. I read this week about Orthodox Jews who refuse to accept an individual who is not born into Judaism. It's kind of an odd thing. The idea here is that if an individual converts to Judaism, they will not consider you to be a Jew. And the reason is this. They don't see Judaism as something that you do. Instead, they see it as who you are. You can't just change your habits according to the Orthodox Jew. And therefore, 
if you become a Jew and you're not actually a Jew, then, well, you're not actually a Jew. Well, in a manner, we believe the same thing, although we do welcome converts to Christianity. What I've been describing to you today is revival. It is more than just taking on the name of Christ. It is more than just keeping a list of do's and don'ts, although there are some things you ought to do as believers in Christ. And there are some things you ought not to do as believers in Christ. But it is much more than just keeping your list of do's and don'ts. It is about becoming new creations in Christ. It is about being transformed into his likeness. It is about us being born again. The old is dead and the new has come to life. If you are completely separated from God today, I want you to know that he is like the father who with open arms is eager to welcome you back as his child. What a beautiful image. This, this kid comes back, this young adult comes back to his father. And remember, he's got that speech worked out. He knows exactly what he's going to say. And before the father can say anything, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And I am not worthy to be called your son. And you almost picture the father interrupting a mid-sentence. Foolishness. My son who was dead is now alive. He didn't say my servant has come back. He welcomes him back, not as a servant, but as a son. Kill the fatted calf. We are going to have a feast. I want you to know today that God looks at you and he says, yes, you have allowed sin to exist in your life. You have allowed things to take place that do not belong. But if you will come home, I will embrace you, not as a servant, but as a son. Regardless of whether you have wandered outside of the body of Christ or you've done so within the body of Christ. Maybe you've looked and you've thought, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. Maybe you can quote more scriptures than the person sitting beside you. Or maybe even more than anybody else in the room. If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you are not reflecting the fruits of the Spirit in you, it is time for us once again to die daily to sin. It is time for us to experience revival. I'm not talking about the token revival that says, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm talking about the revival that results in a life that is changed. So that the rest of the world will look and say, whatever it is that he's got, whatever it is that she's got, I want that. I believe today that God wants revival to take place. But it's got to begin in our hearts. If you would, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. Father, we recognize today that what makes us holy is not our goodness, but it is the presence of God in our lives. It is our intimate connection with our Father. Father, some of us have been away from the Lord for so long that we question whether you would take us back. Father, I pray that as we return like the prodigal son returned, Lord, I pray that you would open your arms and rejoice over a son and a daughter 
who has come home. But I pray also for the many who are more like the other son. We have been in the household of our father. We have done the things that we've been asked to do. And somewhere along the way, we forgot that we didn't deserve the grace we received. Father, I pray for revival to take place. And I do pray that it would happen outside the church. But I pray that it would happen inside the church. Lord, help us to be the people that you called us to be. People who are fully surrendered to you. Again, take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Lord, make us a people who genuinely love you more than anything else. Father, I thank you for your grace. I do pray for revival to take place in this land, but let it begin right here, right now. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people that reflect you. Not just on Sunday morning. Every single moment, every day. Help us to die daily to sin and to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I would suggest I rush through a little bit of that, but I think I did pretty good because we're done at 10.15, which was my goal. So, hey, it is a blessing to be in the house of the Lord, uh, to be able to worship and to celebrate him. I want us to be the church that God called us to be. That is a holy church that honors the Lord with everything that we say and do. Let's work on that collectively. Thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace. Thanks, Tim.